This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Hi, everyone. We're back. Here we are with a brand new season, season three of The Wild. I hope you're all managing to stay healthy and happy. These have definitely been some very difficult times in human history. Hopefully a portal to better times, I like to think. It's been so good getting your messages and reading your reviews, amazing stuff, and it really fuels me and the team for sure, so please do keep them coming. If ever I'm having a bad day, I just look at some of those reviews and it really brightens everything, so thank you. And spring feels good. I'm ready for it. The extra light and warmer weather here where I live in Washington State is is really starting to stir the wildlife, and it's so inspiring. And we are very excited to bring a ton more stories to transport you into the wild. This season will take you from the mind of a raven to the wings of a fly, mountain caribou to orangutans, condors, beetles, and more. We're kicking season three off with an adventure I took recently to Belize. It was December, and we took all of the COVID precautions to keep everyone safe. It's hard to narrow down to just a couple of stories in this amazing little country, but we did. We managed it. And this first episode is about scarlet macaws. It's a really layered mix of colorful wildlife and colorful people. It's a hard country to encapsulate, but I think you'll really enjoy our story. So kick back. Lend me your ears, and let's get back to nature. Thanks for listening. I'm glad you're here. It was June 7th, 2020, when gunshots rang through the jungle. A man was down, and with him, a bag he'd been carrying. Inside the bag were seven baby chicks, each only about a month old. They can't fly or survive on their own. They've got grey, downy feathers on their body, but their wings are already bright with red, blue and yellow. The man has just climbed a tall tree to their nest. He's reached into the trunk and grabbed each chick one by one. They are scarlet macaws, giant tropical parrots, each of them worth around $400 on the black market. But as the poacher reaches the ground with a bag full of chicks, he's spotted by rangers. They chase him through the thick jungle. It gets intense. There's a brawl and shots are fired. The poacher ends up being rushed to hospital for his injuries. All seven macaw chicks are rescued and brought to an animal rehabilitation center. There, they'll hopefully get a second chance at life in the wild. These birds, scarlet macaws, live dramatic lives, sometimes from the moment they're born. They're prized by poachers and being squeezed as their rainforest habitat is lost. They're astounding birds in so many ways. In his book, The Last Flight of the Scarlet Macaw, Bruce Barcott described them perfectly. The Scarlet Macaw looks like a creature dreamed up by Dr. Seuss. It's a red parrot with wings tipped buttercup yellow and royal blue. It possesses a bill capable of cracking bones and a tongue as dexterous as a human thumb. Macaws mate for life, and those lives can be incredibly long, 50 years or more. 
If birds formed villages, a town of Macaws would thrum with happy marriages and lively conversation. Beautifully said. The Macaws live among huge trees in a tropical wonderland that's always under some kind of threat, but there is a small army of people that are out to help them. My journey to meet them shows how these birds capture their hearts. This is the story of their world, the birds and the brave people dedicated to saving them in the tropical rainforest of Belize. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. Just jumping into the boat here. All right. To the Scarlet Macaws, we hope, right? Here we yeah. come. <laughs> I've traveled to the small Central American country of Belize to find a very special bird. And after a three day journey from home, my target's within reach. The boat I'm on is taking me up the Macaw River towards the home of this truly tropical bird the scarlet macaw. So, this is the um, Katskiam area. This is another area that the scarlet macaw is nesting every year. Usually around here we have our own seven nests. That's Francisco Galicia, Chico. He's part of a small team of wildlife researchers from an organization called FCD, Friends for Conservation and Development. These guys are on the front line when it comes to protecting these prized birds and they're the best people to be with when you want to catch a glimpse. But there are no guarantees. Um, I uh, see the, to, to see Scarlet Maca is something that we need to, to bring a good luck, you know, because, you know, it's a wild parrot, so we can tell the parrots, be there, because I'm bringing a special guest to see you, right? Luck, we'll definitely need it. As we head into the jungle, it feels like we're beginning a hunt for a hidden treasure. And in some ways, we are. An adult scarlet macaw is one of the largest parrots in the world. They weigh over two pounds and measure about 40 inches tip to tail. But that doesn't make them easy to find because they live in dense jungle. And here, that jungle is a piece of the largest solid block of tropical forest north of the Amazon, the Chickaboo Forest, the biggest managed reserve in the whole of Belize and the only place macaws still survive in Belize, part of the Maya mountain range. We're lucky, it's a dry day. I live near Seattle, which is well known for its rain, about 40 inches of it per year. Belize can get two, three, or even four times that much. It's that rain and the intense, humid heat that makes the Chickaboo special. There's huge biodiversity here, and it's only recently been explored in 2006, one study recorded nearly 100 plant species here that hadn't ever been reported in Belize. It still feels like a place where there's a lot to discover. I try to stay focused, looking for a flash of color in the sky. But Chico tells me we'll probably hear the macaws before we see them. It's hard to see them because they're hiding in the bushes. And, and when they're in the flight, in flight, when they're flying across, what do they, what do they look like? What are the colours and the visuals that I need to Red, think about? Red, blue, and yellow. Those are the ones. 
Isatapir. What's the shape here? It's at a pier, crossing the river. What? We, we are moving close to see. There's a tapir crossing the river in front of us, about 100 yards away. Oh my god. It's a Baird's tapir, Central America's biggest mammal, an endangered species. So this is an unexpected sighting. Do you still see him? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's reaching to the, to, to, to the river edge. Right now we're going to reach a little bit closer. Just be prepared with the cameras to snap a good pictures, right? The tapir is about 50 yards in front of us, swimming across the river, and then it climbs up the muddy bank and slips into the jungle, really quietly for an animal of 600 pounds or more. It's really curious looking, a long-nosed creature, like some kind of elephant cousin, but actually more related to horses and rhinos. They call them the jungle cow around here. Wow. So there's no chance we'll see him again, hey? He's gone? Yeah, he's gone. He's gone into the bushes, so it's until another day, maybe, you know? <laughs> another creature that seemed like it was conjured up in a storybook of animal misfits. Everything here is unfamiliar and unusual. The river is wide, more of a lake because of a pretty controversial dam that was put in in 2005. We cruise between old trees sticking out of the water that were inundated after the dam. Some of them were used by macaws for feeding and nesting. The life and density of the jungle are hard to take in. When the skiff engine quietens, I I can hear weird sounds coming from everywhere. A huge ringed kingfisher swoops by. And there are herons fishing on the edge and vultures circling overhead. Some of them sound almost familiar and make me feel like I'm at home in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, crocodile. Oh, wow, right on the shore. A crocodile snaps me out of it. This is a Moralette's crocodile about 10 feet long, sunning itself on the muddy shore. It's another great sighting. It's a beauty. I can't deny, I feel a bit like Martin Sheen heading up river at the beginning of Apocalypse Now. This is beautiful in here. Really do, really do feel like we're getting into the, the realm of the macaw here with big trees either side of the jungle, just towering into the sky, either side of the river here. Some of the trees are over a hundred feet high and harbour entire ecosystems of species. Our necks are cricked, searching the sky for macaws. One of the other guys on the boat spots something. Spider monkeys? Where are you looking? Right straight of you, right there. You can see all the treetops moving. Yeah, yeah. See Oh, yes, look at that, really clear. Wow, walking through the trees. Yeah, it's a, it's a spider monkey. We didn't get very far, did we? Crocodiles, spider monkeys. <laughs> There's a lot to see. But we finally start making progress up the river. And then, right out of nowhere... There's two macas. They're flying. I jump up, almost lose balance in the boat, and whip my head around just in time to see a pair of scarlet macaws right overhead, belting out a loud squawk. They're moving really fast across the sky, with their long blue and red tails streaming behind them. I want to hug you. 
Give me your elbow. <laughs> oh. That was amazing. You see, you guys go with the good luck. My first Scarlet Macaws. Everyone is smiling, especially Chico. There are fewer than 350 Scarlet Macaws in Belize, so every sighting is important. When you see them, they're usually flying in pairs like these two. Sometimes they have a youngster in tow, and even in big flocks of dozens. They mate for life, and it's here in the Chickaboo Forest that a couple like this will nest and raise their family. We pull the boat to the shore and head into the jungle a little ways. I'm still high from our sighting as we look for a place to talk among the palms and tall trees. Rafael Manzanero has been with us on the boat. He's the executive director of FCD and a legendary figure for conservation here in Belize. He says that scarlet macaws are emblematic of his country. So we thought that um, the colorful uh, you know, plumage of the bird um, the way how they have been under a threat for quite some years, we felt that that was really a very, uh, a very special bird that we needed forcefully to put a lot of attention on and also to bring it as a symbology of the Chiquimul jungles because of the colourful um, you know, image that it has. A flagship species, in other words, one that's under threat but that's charismatic enough to really grab attention and motivate people to embrace forest protection. One of the biggest threats to macaws is poaching. For the pet trade or either for illegal trafficking, um, you know, for the movement of the bird across countries. And what are people using them for? It's, it's really only a pet, um, a pet bird. It's hard to imagine that these birds could be lost because of the pet trade. And it's quite the web of criminal behaviour. Scarlet macaws are worth a lot of money. Just how much depends where you fall in the supply chain but from hundreds to thousands of dollars. And in many cases, it's desperate Guatemalans that come from villages across the border into Belize to take them. The border's only about 10 miles from where we're sitting. Chickabool is 700 square miles of dense jungle rainforest, a perfect place to poach. It's so easy to hide. So, so what you see are, of course, local people from Guatemala coming in. But who is really paying them? You know, who is basically behind this? Um, we don't really know so much. Mm. The, 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 the kind of the, of the studies and investigations um, is still pretty much ongoing. The poachers take the macaws as chicks, and they're mostly sold to wealthy people all around the world as pets. Some of the birds end up in the flashy homes or offices of mafia members. It's big business. Losing the chicks means the macaw population here is being impacted in a serious way. Raphael tells me the poacher that was caught with seven chicks a few months ago was only a few miles from here. But there have been reports, last year there were reports of about 50 or more pearls that were extracted out. Wow. It's, wow, that's crazy when you consider there's only 350 of them around. Yeah. 50 chicks poached. They're a species that doesn't breed prolifically, so when the scarlet macaw is down to low numbers, it can be hard to recover from that kind of loss. They don't really reproduce like a chicken, um, you know, it's, it's, and, uh, and so the numbers out in the wild, once you release one or you say five, then that basically is a lot for the population. Oh. And of course, at the same time, if you lose those kind of five or six, or in this case, we have lost, uh, you know, from what we can reckon, we probably lose about 25 every year or more at the hands of poachers. In other words, saving or losing five or six is a big deal. Protecting every single chick is crucial. 
Chico brings me to one of the trees the macaws use to nest. It's a qualmwood tree. The macaws love the cavities in this species, perfect as nest holes. Oh, I see right in the elbow of the branch yep. there. Yep. And so that is a typical nesting spot for a macaw? Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. The parents usually lay two or three eggs, and after hatching, the chicks stay in the nest for three months, trying to avoid predators and poachers high up the tree. So you that, climb all the way up that, and then, and then you count the chicks. Yep. Mm -hmm. Take them out? Take them out for a health check. Yeah. Uh-huh. Track them, we put it in, in, a, in, a, in a bag, like our pillowcase. Yeah. When they find a nest, Chico and the team climb the tree to count and monitor the chicks. Every week or so, they lower them down to weigh and measure them and check how they're doing. It's not a job for the faint of heart. These guys sometimes have to climb 100 feet up to reach the chicks. And just having people around these nests helps to protect them from poachers. Volunteers can even come to help out, surveying nests, observing birds and chicks, often camping out at the base of trees like macaw babysitters. And by doing that, of course, it means a presence in the landscape. And that really is what reduces then the, the kind of the, of the probability of poachers coming in into this area. And it's working. Poaching is way down in this area since human presence was increased. The team stays out here for weeks at a time, leaving their own young families behind, playing surrogate mum for the macaw chicks. Members of the FCD team sometimes even hand rear orphan or sickly chicks too, including the seven retrieved from the captured poacher a few months ago. And it becomes really personal. Raphael says Chico and all these guys meet the macaws when they're an egg, and they watch them grow into an adult. So it's no wonder they become protective. There's another young member of the team, Richard Harris. Richard is 21. He tells me he's part of a family that's worked in this area for generations. His grandfather even taught the British Army jungle survival on training missions here. His family has deep roots in the jungle. Well, yeah, it's like it runs in my blood, you know, because from all my uncles, them, all of them love the jungle. All of them. Richard has had lots of hands-on experience with macaws over the years working on this team. What is it like to see those birds close and the chicks? Well, it's just, uh, I don't know how to explain it to you. It's something that is hard to explain, you know, it's like when you fall in love. <laughs> yeah, it's something great, something amazing. It's like falling in love. Yeah, it's like falling in love. What do they mean to you? Well, to these scarlet macaws, they mean like a lot to, to we as a Belizean, you know, because they were like endangered birds. And to be working here in the chicken bowl, protecting them, like is something I'm proud of. Like not everybody has that opportunity or that, you know, chance. So I'm proud of being a Belizean and also working for something that we know is a big benefit for our country. He puts in long hours. He tells me he's in the jungle more than he is at home. They're amazing birds and we have to take care of them because, I mean, without animals, without macaws, without animals, what is a rainforest? What is a jungle? It isn't called a jungle anymore. <laughs> so we need also not only the trees, but the animals that live in them.
The Chickaboo Forest covers 6% of the country. It's the pulsing heart of Scarlet Macaw life in Belize. But Raphael tells me that the Chickaboo is really only half the story. So when they fly over the mountains, um, we realize then that the, uh, the trees, you know, the, the, the plants where they feed on are pretty much also being chopped and being hacked away. So now if we start to look at the population of macaws, we have to now really think, even though the chicky bull is the breeding site for them, we have realized that even if we save the pockets here of macaws, then they also depend upon the feeding in the grounds across the Maya mountain range. It's been discovered that the macaws here actually migrate southeast every year, about 30 miles, over the Maya mountains. At this time of year, December, January, there's more food down there than here in the Chickaboo, the fruiting trees they need. It's especially important food for soon-to-be parents that need to fatten up before nesting. There are no poachers there, but the birds face other challenges when they arrive. I decide to follow them. After the break, I head over the Maya Mountains and meet a farmer who dreams of saving the Macaw's rainforest home. I wake up early with the birds at the research camp I'm staying at. It's called Las Cuevas, deep in the jungle of the Chickaboo Forest. This flight south that the scarlet macaws take from here is on my mind, and they're starting to make their annual migration now. For the macaws, it's a 30-mile flight, but for me, it's a winding road through the mountains. I'm on the Hummingbird Highway. How beautiful is that? And this highway crosses the Maya Mountains and this is a 70 mile long mountain range that stretches up into the sky up of over 3,000 feet in places and it is beautiful. It's luxuriant and green and rich and tropical. I drive through thick forest and then little villages with houses on stilts and banana leaf or tin roofs. The backdrop is stunning, rounded, jungle-covered mountains everywhere. I'm constantly driving in and out of heavy tropical downpours. I finally turn off the main road, onto a bumpy gravel road. It's thick with red clay mud that splashes up the side of my truck. Welcome to Red Bank Village. The picture of a toucan on their side. This is gorgeous. The village of Red Bank looks like something from another age. There's a crackly stereo playing reggae in the distance. Horses munching at the side of the road. Children are running through the streets and stare as I drive by. Everything is deep green and saturated. Hello, hello. 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 Are you Mr. Soub? Yes. Can I elbow? Yeah. (laughs) Nice to meet you. Mr. Florentino Soub is a farmer here. He's in his 50s, short, with friendly eyes. His skin is dark brown from years of farming in the tropical sun. I am a farmer. I am just a farmer. I only plant beans, um, corn, then I have a cocoa farm, then I have um, some orange orchard also, and then I like to plant trees like samwood and poolwood and prick yellow. That's what I'm trying to plant in my farm. I'm just a farmer's. Mr. Soub's farm covers about 30 acres. He walks to it every morning, three miles, through the village and up into the hills. He farms in the traditional Mayan way, rotating crops. 
is good for the land and for the wildlife. He has seven sons who help him. But it's a tough life. So a few years ago, Mr. Soob opened a bed and breakfast as part of a small rural business he's trying to build around the macaws here for his family. And people have started to come, Belizeans and foreign tourists, to see the macaws of Red Bank. So as a farmer, do you see the other macaws uh, an alternative income? Yes, um, since we start our this business now with, with um, tourism business, it's, it helps us a lot. It helps us a lot because um, when we, visitors come, we, we charge them because they stay overnight with us, we feed them and you know, we, we guide them and then that helps us a lot. Mr. Soob and one of his sons, Rogelio, want to show me a good spot to see macaws, where they usually take their tourist guests. It's a short, steep hike up through the jungle towards a hilltop, the best place to see the macaws from above. It's really hot and humid. As we climb, a view of the canopy unfolds. It's amazing to see the forest from this high vantage point. Which way? Right there, to the left. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Another two? Two macaws fly right below us. Oh my God, so beautiful. Yeah, they're, they're the one. Cruising through the treetops. That is amazing. They're easy to see when they're flying. They're yeah, so they're colourful. Easy, yeah, you can see it. Mr. Sue brought me here to see them from above because their colours glisten in the sun from this angle. And once I get my eye in, I start to see more of them. Oh, that's the best view yet. Long red tails, blue wings, flashing through the trees. A pair of macaws in love. Some of the macaws are flying and others in the treetops. Yeah. It's the food they've come for, all the way from the Chickaboo Forest. The fruit and nuts of the wild anato, prickly yellow, symphonia and mountain trumpet. And one of their favourites, the fruit of the polewood tree. It's about the size of a grape and when it ripens it turns deep red. This fruit is one of the main reasons the macaws come here. It's like a fuel stop for these mating pairs. Mr. Soob stares across the forest at them with a twinkle in his eye. I have no idea how many he's seen over the years, but he makes it seem like there is first. Very romantic. Yes. Yes. Romantic birds. Yes. Does your wife think you're romantic? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, you have seven sons. Yeah. <laughs> From the top of the hill, I can see the village of Redbank down below. It sits in a mixture of small fields and crops. And the mountains we're standing on provide this safe haven for the macaws. Steep, muddy slopes, tall trees, thick jungle, and lots to eat. I love these birds because um, this is the only bird that we have to show the tourists in Red Bank. So that's why we love them. And then we want to protect them, not to touch nobody to touch them. That's why we try to keep them around all the time. Every year you come here, you will see them. You will never miss them, not one year. Every year they come here. As we head back down the hillside, we come back to the road. Villagers are walking and cycling by. Hello. How are you? Fine. Wow. Hey, guys. <laughs> Turn around, nearly run over by a horse. Hi. Wow, guy with a chainsaw strapped to his horse. 
Mr. Soob explains to me that this area isn't a reserve, and sometimes people head up the mountain to cut down trees to sell or use, often illegally. The very trees the macaws have also come here for. If we don't protect it, if we continue um, threatening the, the forest, it's not good. But some people want wood because it's money, and they see the scarlet macaw as just perhaps a difficult path. Yeah. Yeah, well, you see, some, some people think about it, that scarlet macaw, they only come for four months. And then after the four months, they're gone. Oh. But that's not, that's not the way to, to protect them. We need, still, we need to keep that tree for them until they come back. Mr. Soob has been trying to convince the whole village to get behind his tourism plan, to sustain the people and the macaws. But that's a tough story to sell sometimes because the macaws are only here for three or four months each year, not long enough to sustain a year-round tourism industry. And there's another problem, not poachers, but habitat loss. Mr. Sub tells me about a new Mennonite village that was established here a few years ago. They're cutting down a lot of trees and that could threaten the macaws. But what to do? Because it's a private land and then they sell it and then we can't do nothing. And about so they're cutting trees down? Cutting, cutting trees down. About, they cut about like a hundred acres now. Why? Because they're making some... They, have, they live there. They have own um, families there. They have their own pastor and then, you know, they do own farming there. And then it's a private land. We can't do nothing about it. The Mennonites are a community of people originally from German and Dutch-speaking parts of Central Europe and Russia. There are about 10,000 of them in Belize. I've seen a few as I've travelled through the country, especially in the farmed landscapes, sometimes smack dab next to the rainforest. There are a lot of Mennonites around Mr. Soob's mostly Mayan village, and I'm keen to learn more, so Mr. Soob offers to introduce me to his friend who's a farmer in Roseville, the Mennonite village. Roseville is across the river from Red Bank, and besides a horse and cart through the deep water, there's only one way to get there. Okay, Rogelio, what's happening? I'm going to travel to this um, zip line to cross to the Bruceville. A zip line. There's a thick steel cable crossing the wide river Uh-oh. with a little platform <laughs> hanging underneath it to sit on. But I'm not sure right, it was built for my six foot easy. four frame. Okay, I'm jumping onto this uh, zip line across the river. I'm a little top heavy. Okay, holy crap! I jump off somehow without taking a plunge and head towards town. A horse-drawn cart passes us by and a water wheel spins in the river, powering machinery in a mill. The people wave, friendly but curious, maybe even a bit sceptical. Very nice to meet you, I'm Chris. Chris, I'm Peter. Peter, nice to meet you. Peter Penner is tall with a jolly smile and a big beard. He's wearing the black-brimmed hat and denim overalls that make the Mennonite men so recognisable. He looks at my microphone and camera nervously at first, but agrees to talk. This is, this is incredible. Yeah, that's just uh, a rope. That's our belt, and it goes there. And it powers a, a oh, saw? Really? Yeah. Wow. If you want to see it, no problem. Can I? Yeah. yeah. I'd love to. I walk up the short hill with him to his workshop. This Mennonite community doesn't use electricity or fuel. All powered by the water wheel. Yeah, by the water wheel. 
No, no motorised, no, no, nothing. No, no, no. Wow. The lumber that the Mennonites remove to clear the land for farming is used to make furniture to sell. So are you a carpenter? Yeah, carpenter. Yeah. Wow. The Mennonites are a Christian community. They've become important agriculturalists since their arrival in Belize in the 50s. Their farms grow essential food for the country, crops and meat. But in the process, they buy up rainforest and convert it to farmland. It seems like a curious contradiction going on. What does your religion and your people feel about, uh, about the animals uh, in the area? Oh, I think there are always places like it's good to have them. And the hills and places where people can't work, they live there. But since there is good land and we need it, we clear the bush. Your farm is on the edge of the, of yeah, the rainforest and you right. have macaws in the sky. We see them every day. Really? But you see, there are a lot less now. I heard that the Guatemalans people, they kill them and sell the feathers maybe for five quetzal each. They kill a lot because we, we saw here always crowds, about about hundred and a crowd. Ooh, a lot. Really? Yeah. I when? Mean, just two, three years ago. Really? Yeah. And now you see only, sometimes you see two, three, and sometimes you see about 30 or 20, but you don't see much. Not as many as you used to. Oh, no, a big difference. Wow. Peter has heard about the Guatemalan poachers 30 miles away in the Chickabull Forest. He sees them as the reason the macaws have dropped in numbers. It's ironic to me. I understand the Mennonites need to make a living and support their families, but the result is they're destroying macaw habitat. I also understand I'm walking a fine line of beliefs and lifestyles. Can I ask you a question? So my, my world, my life, um, is about uh, wildlife mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and conservation. And it feels uh, important. Do you think God wants us to protect wild animals, like macaws or jaguars? Or Do you think he wants that? Well, the thing is, well, I think we could agree... In a, in a way, like for what reason I would kill the, um, the macaw? Because they are so nice and they not do nothing bad to us. The animals which do nothing to us, for what reason we would kill them, we would really appreciate them. Mm-hmm. But since every animal have no soul, it's just animals. Yeah. You agree that? Um. I, I I agree I agree that animals have a different soul to humans, but I also think that they have rights. I think that animals deserve a place on the planet uh, like humans deserve a place on the planet. It's, so it's slightly different. Do you know what I mean? It's interesting. But um, you think they will live forever and ever in heaven? Maybe. No, they will not. Uh, what is the future here in uh, Roseville? What's the future? Uh, bigger farms or... or oh. uh, <clears throat> no, not really. Not really bigger farms. But since more people move here from other places and more young people grow up, 
We are supposed to look for more land, maybe a, a, another settlement, or if we could buy a little more close to have land for our young people. That's the future we, we have to, to think about it. Mr. Sub and his son, Rogelio, are waiting for me at the dirt road entrance to the farm. He seems a bit distant, staring at the fields around him. All this was jungle just six years ago. The Mennonites can't be blamed for all the habitat destruction, but it certainly isn't helping. Mr. Sub seems like a very understanding man. I didn't hear him once complain about what the Mennonites are doing. Besides, he's anxious to show me something his solution to the habitat loss he's seeing every day. For him and the macaws, it begins and ends with trees. You know why I have a dream? I want to plant more trees because I don't want these birds to go away. He knows the birds fly here from the north to feed, but as the forest comes down, the macaws' options are shrinking. So his plan is to replant the forest. You only dig like... Uh, Five inches? To fill the hills inches. with fruiting trees for the macaws to eat. And is it good soil? It's a good soil. It's very good soil. It's very rich soil. Starting on his farm. A few months ago, he received a small grant, enough to buy and plant 500 trees. I'm going to plant more trees to attract this bird and then make we have this bird here and then I, I, I want to train a lot of people more to have this business like what I have. I want to train them how to do it and then, then we could um, attract more birds, then we could attract more visitors, and then we could have this for 50 years. Mr. Soob is clutching a tree sapling under his arm. It's a 12-inch polewood tree. And then what's next? Then we're going to plant the tree now. Okay. Yeah. He digs into the ground with a long wooden stake, pulls out some of the thick clay soil. The soil, and plants the tree. In just three years, it'll provide fruit for the macaws. Macaws, his human visitors will see. Yeah. That's it. Another tree for the macaws. Yeah, another tree for the macaws. Number five. <laughs> no, no. 501, I think. <laughs> this 501 tree. <laughs> Could I. Could I plant number 502? Yes, you could do that. Right here? Yeah, right there. You have to dig the soil first. I'm honored, guys. Okay, good luck, little tree. Make lots of fruit for the macaws. I hear something overhead. Macaws. Four of them. Like crimson. Yes. You know what's crazy is is the second I planted the tree. Yeah, and then the same times they're coming. Because they're happy when you plant one tree. <laughs> That's why they come and say, okay. Then plant one tree for me, I will show myself for them. This is a gift for him. The the planter. <laughs> That's why they, that's why they come. The macaws flying over us could even be the chicks that were rescued from the poacher a few months ago. Five of them were released into the wild. 
They'll join many macaws to make this journey for 50 years or more during their long lives. And I have a feeling Mr. Soob and his sons will be here to greet them as their farmland forest grows. If you'd like to learn more about Mr. Florentino Soub's Scarlet Macaw Bed and Breakfast, you can follow them on Instagram at scarletmacawbb. Be sure to check out our Instagram account at The Wild Pod, and you can find me at Chris Morgan Wildlife. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. We have more information on our website, thewildpod.org. I want to thank Boris Aravello for the information he provided for this episode, and Miguel Soub for his help in Red Bank. And a very special thank you for their kind financial support to Rose Letwin, Jill and Scott Walker, Ellen Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Mark and Rebecca Wilkins, Bob Yellowlees, and Paul Lister. And to Paul's organization, the European Nature Trust, for making this trip to Belize possible. The Wild is a production of KURW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan with support from Wildlife Media. Our producers for this episode are Brenda Phillips and Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. Our production team includes David Brown, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Kara McDermott, Tio Popescu, Darcy Riggins-Smith, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoy The Wild, please do ask your friends to follow our podcast and give us a review. It would really help us grow. Five stars would be great. Thank you and take good care. My name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.